And in this open vision, it was Paul Cain operating in a prophetic way. He saw a banner over this house, over this building, and it said, Holiness unto the Lord. He knew it would be a young adult worship movement. He knew they would have new sounds from heaven. He knew there would be a prophetic anointing. But at the very center of this calling, of this promise, was the banner, Holiness to the Lord. And in this holiness to the Lord, what the Lord told him, He said, I am going to reveal to them a new approach to holiness. Now we understand there is no new approach in reality. There's only the old approach, the Word of God. But it's a new approach to holiness in terms of our culture. The church in our culture is off-center and is confused about the issue of holiness. Matter of fact, holiness is one of those words that is kind of a real negative word. Because there's so many confused ideas about the subject of holiness. And why God calls it and how it works. But God wants to release an impartation of wholeheartedness. You can say holiness or you can say wholeheartedness. Or you can say fascination with Jesus. It's the same thing. You can call it the first commandment being restored to first place, the anointing to love God with all of your heart. That's a supernatural power. The anointing to love God with all of your heart. The first commandment, you shall love the Lord your God, being restored to first place in the church, that is called holiness. It's the anointing to love. It's being exhilarated in our spirit. I wrote a book called The Pleasure of Loving God, which is nothing more than the topic of holiness. Because, beloved, this may be a new idea, but when we're wholehearted and we're connected to the Holy Spirit, even before we have the breakthrough of maturity, even before the issues are all settled, when the commitment is there, we begin to feel, I'm talking about feel, an exhilaration and a fascination with Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. There's nothing I love more than feeling God in my spirit. And in this book, The Pleasures of Loving God, I talk about the superior pleasures of the gospel. The greatest pleasures that God created for the human spirit is the pleasure when God reveals God to the human spirit. God is the author of pleasure. He's the author of physical pleasure. The devil has counterfeited some of God's physical pleasures. He is the author of emotional pleasures. And the devil comes in and perverts some of that. He's the author of several other pleasures. I don't want to go into all that right now. But the greatest pleasures available to the human spirit are spiritual pleasures. When God reveals God to the human spirit, it exhilarates us like nothing else in all of creation. Beloved, that's called holiness. That's where the pursuit of a vibrant heart, the pursuit of happiness, is in this connectedness with the Holy Spirit. Let's go to Roman numeral 2. The clearest description, Roman numeral 2, the Sermon on the Mount, the core values of the kingdom, the clearest description in the Bible... For purity, for wholeheartedness, for loving God and loving people, or you can use the word holiness, is the Sermon on the Mount. There's nowhere in the Word of God where it is more precisely and concisely laid out. One, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three. There it is. The Sermon on the Mount, it's three chapters. It's Jesus' greatest teaching. I call it the constitution of the kingdom. And again, on the internet we have many documents on the Sermon on the Mount. And you can have them again and you can use them. You need to, in your own Bible studies, back home, you need to make some handouts. I love handouts so people can have all the verses right there. And you need to study the Sermon on the Mount, not just with your friends, but it is the primary call to the church is to live the Sermon on the Mount lifestyle. I've been in ministry now over 30 years, full-time ministry. 
And I rarely ever hear a message on the Sermon on the Mount, and it is the core reality of the kingdom of God, and I rarely ever hear a message on the Sermon on the Mount. And as many of you have teaching ministries back home today, and you will have teaching ministries, others of you in the future, decide in your heart you're going to you're going to teach God's way, and I tell you, it is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is the litmus test to measure our success in life. When I stand before God, He's not going to ask me how big my conferences were, or how many people listened to my teaching on TV. He's going to ask me about the size of my heart Not the size of my checkbook or the size of my conferences. When I stand before God, He's not going to say, How much money did you have? Or how big was your ministry? He's going to say, My son, how big was your heart when you were on the earth? And it is defined by the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7. We really want to become completely immersed in the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. Your foundational calling in life, my foundational calling, is not ministry. That's second. The number one calling that is before you from the Holy Spirit's point of view is that you would live out the eight Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount. A lot of people are saying, what's my calling? What's my calling? What they mean is, what is my occupation? Or what is my ministry assignment? That's a very valid question. What is my occupation going to be when you're 20 years old? That's a great question. And what is my ministry assignment? That's a great question. And of course, the next huge one, who am I going to marry? That's a great question. That, those are not bad. Here's the problem. That's not the main question that the Holy Spirit wants you to ask. The main question He wants you to ask is how you can effectively fill your highest calling. And your highest calling is the issue of your own heart with God. Those other issues are very important, but they are second. We need to be consumed with our primary calling, and the Lord is going to measure Mike Bickle's life on one standard. What's the Word of God? But just to summarize it, He's going to look at the eight Beatitudes, and He's going to measure my life by the eight Beatitudes, not by the size of my conference ministry. There will be, there will be preachers that fill stadiums, and there will be others that will be far greater than they are when they stand before God, who they were completely unheard of during their life. Well, I have the eight Beatitudes listed there. And again, we have a lot of teaching on the, on the website to break it down. Some of you might say, well, what, what do these mean? And I don't want to go into detail of that right now. Paragraph B. We need a paradigm shift in our life. We need a total new focus of our heart. I'm talking about the church in the Western world. We need to make the number one focus of our life our primary calling for our heart to grow and to be great in God's sight. Now that might be a a new idea to some of you. Right after Jesus taught the Beatitudes in Matthew 5, right here in verse 19, the same chapter, He calls every single believer and invites them to the place of greatness. Now this is a teaching that throws off a lot of people. But remember, it's Jesus who's the one that gave it. Here's what He said. Whoever breaks the least of these commandments and teaches men to do so, this person shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does the least of these commandments and teaches other people, this man or this woman shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. What does this verse mean? There are so many messages in this passage. 
Number one, he's talking about the kingdom in the age to come. Clearly, that's what he's talking about. He's talking about born-again believers in the age to come. Did you know that when we all are together in the kingdom of God in the age to come, some of us will be called the least. We will be in the kingdom. We will have a resurrected body. But among us will be those that are called least and those that are called great, but they're all born again. They're all freely forgiven by the blood of Jesus, but they will have a different standing and a, and a different assignment in the kingdom of God in the age to come. And Jesus said, if you will do it my way, you will be called great in my kingdom. Many believers will be called least in the age to come. Now, they sort of think, so what? As long as I have a little cabin on the edge of glory, I'll be fine. I don't think so. What I mean, I, th I mean, you will be fine. Yes, resurrected body, eternal city, you're going to be in good shape. Jesus was not distracted and off-center when He gave this teaching. There's a dimension about being great in the age to come that Jesus knows you will care about. First of all, our view of the age to come. Now, I'm going to take just a minute or two and, t and talk about a subject on the age to come that I've talked on for hours and hours and hours, so it's going to be really hard for me to keep this to one minute. Or two minutes. But the age to come is different than how many believers imagine it. When we die, the point when we die is not to go to heaven. When we die... And Jesus returns, is what is, is a more accurate way to say it. Heaven is coming to the earth. It's the other way around. Yes, for 2,000 years, from the, from the resurrection to the second coming, for a 2,000-year period, when we die, our spirit goes to heaven, and we have a disembodied spirit. We don't have a physical body in heaven. We have a spirit. And at the second coming, when the church is raptured, the first thing that happens is the dead in Christ are given a resurrected body, and then all the living believers are given a resurrected body. We don't receive a resurrected body till the second coming. Why? We don't need a resurrected body in heaven because we don't need a physical body to relate to the environment of heaven. We only need a physical body when heaven comes to earth. Beloved, we will be living on the earth forever. Heaven is coming to the earth. You will have a physical, resurrected body. You will eat physical food. You will have real relationships. You will have a ministry, and you will be ministering on the earth with the natural realm not suspended and done away with, but enhanced by the glory of the power of the resurrection. My point is this. We imagine that we care about our life now because we have feelings, we have physical pleasures, we're down here on the earth, this is what we care about, and we don't care about our life in the age to come because we think we're going to be on a cloud somewhere playing a harp all by ourselves, worshiping for a billion years. And we say, Jesus, we love you. We feel a little bit guilty that after a billion years, we would like to do something more besides play an instrument. Our view of heaven is on some floating cloud with a spirit kind of existence where if we hugged each other, we would kind of pass through and go, Whoa! Let's try that again. Whoa! We'd walk right through each other. It's not going to be that way. You will care as much about your physical, material life on the earth in the resurrection as you do right now. 
You will be as focused on your ministry then as you are now. I'm talking about on the earth. Well, I took two minutes. Yay, three. That was pretty good because I have hundreds of hours of teaching on these kind of subjects called the end times. My point is this. This verse does not seem to be relevant because we see ourselves far away floating in a spirit-like existence, not really doing anything. And your life will be as material and physical as it is now. There will be certain dimensions that are not present in the age to come, but you will have a physical body, a material body, a resurrected body, with all the properties of the resurrection on the earth, and there we will all have different assignments. We will all have a different... Uh, uh, Different dynamics and relationships, just like we do right now. And Jesus was telling them, He said, If you will do the least of these commandments, and you will tell other people, when I give you your next assignment on the earth, it will be a great assignment. We have 70 years on the earth right now. It's what Moses said in Psalm 90. 80 due to strength. Of course, there's obviously some who live longer and some who live shorter. Your 70 years on the earth is your internship. It's your first assignment on the earth. Beloved, you have a thousand year assignment that is going to be given to you based on how you do your 70 year assignment. And it will be an earthly assignment. It will be an earthly ministry. It will be a physical ministry. I mean, it won't just be a spirit floating on a cloud somewhere. It will be real in a real world. And people care a lot about their life now, but they imagine they won't care about their life in their next assignment on the earth, and there's nothing further from the truth. You will care dynamically about your ministry assignment and the things related to your life in your next assignment on the earth. Jesus knew this. And He said, look at look the word He uses, whoever. He opens it wide open. Whoever. It doesn't matter how much education you have or lack of education. You may not have any of unusual giftings. It doesn't matter. You may not have a lot of friends, a lot of abilities. Jesus said it doesn't matter. If you will do it my way, and you will obey even the least of my commandments, and you will encourage others to do it, you will have a great assignment in the age to come. Jesus is the one that called us to greatness. You can't get rid of the desire for greatness. Now, I know that throws off some of you. You can't repent of the desire for greatness. You can't get rid of it. It was put into you by the great God because we were created in His image. Yes, you can repent of pursuing greatness in a wrong way. But pursuing greatness in a wrong way is not the same thing as repenting of greatness. Jesus is the one that put that cry in our spirit. I unashamedly, I've said this for 25 years, meaning it's not a new idea that I'm just thinking about. I am sure I believe this. I've said it for 25, 30 years. I unashamedly, I know it's biblical, I unashamedly want to be great. I am not, I don't have false humility about it. I'm not casting it aside. I just want to do it God's way, in God's timing, in the age to come. I will give up many things related to greatness before men now. Why? Because I'm in pursuit of greatness. Another guy says, well, I don't care about that. I just want to love God. Which is, in essence, loving God is our highest motivation, but it's not our only motivation. There are four or five distinct motivations that Jesus taught for holiness. 
Loving God is the highest. Loving God is the greatest motivation. But beloved, loving God is not the only motivation. Now some have taken exception to this. They go, I don't care about greatness. I go, I think you do. If you don't care about greatness, what you're saying is, Jesus was a little bit in air when He was calling us to greatness. Jesus, you don't really get it. I am in this thing for love and for God. I'm not like you. I am more motivated in a pure way than you are. Jesus would answer, well, I understand you better than you understand you. And trust me, your calling to greatness will motivate you in a dynamic way to walk out love for God. So we need to take our ambivalent thoughts about greatness and throw them away. We need to take our false humility about greatness and throw it away. And we need to believe that what Jesus offered us will really matter to Him and matter to us. Now by the grace of God, the teachers that taught me years ago convinced me That greatness was not only within the reach, it was a biblical mandate to pursue it. And in my 20s, again I'm 52, back in my early 20s, I don't know exactly when, exact date, but I made a determination, a serious determination in my early 20s, based on this verse. I am going after this. I am going to use my money in a calculated way so that when I stand before God, I will be great in His sight. He will see the great responses. I'm going to pray. I'm going to deny sin. I'm going to seek humility for the express purpose of loving you and entering into this commandment, this promise. Many people will be called least in the age to come. The thing that I fear most in life is regret. I have other fears, but regret is the thing I fear most. I do not want to stand before the Lord and receive my thousand-year assignment on the earth with a physical, material, resurrected body, and I don't want regret on that day. That is a clear, focused goal in my life. I do not want regret on that day. So Jesus said, good. You don't have to have regret on that day. Here's what you do, Mike. Do these commandments and teach others. So whereas it's true, I'm teaching this for your edification. I'm teaching you this because I am contending for your greatness. But I have to admit... The Bible says, hey, if you teach it, you will be called great. I'm lining up with this verse. I teach on the Sermon on the Mount all the time for sanctified selfishness. I want this on my record that I teach this day in and day out. Now, don't think that in order to teach this, you need a microphone and a stage in a Sunday morning pulpit. 90% of my teaching is done one-on-one. Every one of you in this room have a teaching ministry. It may be one-on-one, but beloved, believe me, you're teaching. The things that you talked about driving here or flying here to this conference is a part of your teaching ministry. Some of you, you may go, oh no. That's what I was teaching? It is your teaching ministry. You don't have to stop and say, Hello, friend, I am now teaching you. You don't have to do that. In all of your coming and your going in everyday life, in your family and friendships, you are teaching. You're teaching either air, distraction, or you're teaching truth. And a lot of the teaching of truth is in just the normal, everyday fun of loving and serving each other. You don't have to try to be teaching in order to teach. Jesus says, if you will do these... Now, the these things are the commandments. And I'm, I'm, I'm going to skip the explanation. But it boils down to the eight Beatitudes earlier in this chapter. So I want to ask you a question. 
Without looking down, I'm not really asking you this, but without looking down at the page, what are the eight Beatitudes? Because it is the number one standard of success for your life when you stand before God. And some of you might say, I don't even know what they are. Then what are the chances of you actually entering into them if you don't even know what they are because they've not been important enough to you? Now, my point isn't to try to embarrass you. My point is to realign your thinking. To go, you know, now that you mention it, I know the be merciful one. I got that one down. See, peacemaker, somewhere about being peacemaker. I don't know what it means. I try to be a peacemaker, I guess. Uh, some about hungering for something. Yeah, I got sort of. Beloved, these eight Beatitudes need to be the central focus of your entire life on the earth. When you stand before God, you will be measured by these attitudes in your life. And they will all have actions. These attitudes all relate to actions. Don't think it's purely attitude oriented. We get these eight attitudes down, then our actions will be dynamically affected. You want to pray and fast and seek these eight things. You want to ask for the grace of God. You want to get with friends that are going after these eight things. You want to partake of teaching ministries. You want to read books. You want to have conversations that are inspiring these eight attitudes in your life. Paragraph C. Now we're still in Matthew chapter 5. The very pinnacle, the very high point of the Sermon on the Mount is Matthew 5, verse 48. Matthew 5, verse 48. Here's what Jesus said. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, when we read that casually, without thinking about it in depth, we go, what? Be perfect like God's perfect. That is so out of reach, I'm not even going to bother with this one. Perfect! You've got to be kidding! Well, instead of the word perfect, put the word mature. It means the same thing. Instead of the word mature, put the word responsive. Be as responsive to the light as your heavenly Father is to the light. You can put the word responsive. Respond to the light. Now here's how God works. I mean, here's how God carries His heart. All the light that God the Father has, He walks in it. There is no ideal in the Father's heart, there is no high ideal that He does not walk out. All of the light that He has, He walks in it. Now that's not true of you and me. I have dimension, part of the light of the understanding I have is greater than my ability to walk it out. I have more light than I have character that reflects that light. I have ideals. I want to be more, I want to walk more in love. I want to walk in greater purity. I want to walk in greater humility. So the standard is higher than what I'm walking in. But that's not true of God. God walks in all the ideals that He possesses. There is not one ideal that is in the dream state to God, meaning it's out of the reach of His character. Every ideal, the highest ideals that exist, He fully walks in all of them. Now here's what the Spirit's telling us. Here's what Jesus is telling us. Walk in the respond to the light that you have in the way that God responds to the light that He has. Now, God has all the light, but that's not the point that He has it all. The point is, He responds to all the light He has. That's the point of emphasis here. A, born again, a new believer that gets saved today, they only have a little bit of light. Did you know a one-day-old believer can walk in all of the light they have the first day they're born again, and they can be fulfilling Matthew 5:48. They are perfectly responding to the light they have. They don't have much light, but all that they have, they're saying yes to, just like the Father is. Now, here's the way it works. Think of a microscope. I think of the scientist. 
The scientist puts the microscope under, or the slide under the microscope. He wants to cleanse the slide and get it clean and ready for another experiment. He may take the microscope, the hypothetical, because there's scientific ways to cleanse the slide, but he might cleanse the slide, look at it by the natural eye, go, hey, it looks really sparkling clean. Then he puts that slide under the microscope and goes, oh, there's all kinds of dirt still on that slide. So he cleans it more. Then he puts it back under the microscope and he turns it up to 10 power and says, oh, there's a whole lot of dirt still there. So he cleanses it more. It's a bit hypothetical because of all the modern equipment. So he puts that slide back under the microscope. He turns it up now a, a hundred power and he sees more dirt he didn't see earlier. And then the analogy, you could take it, if he turns it to a thousand power, 10,000 power, a hundred thousand power, here's the point. The day that you and I say yes to the Holy Spirit, we're born again, we're like that slide looking at it with the natural eye, meaning the, only, the Holy Spirit's only dealing with one or two issues. We can be fully obedient the day we meet Jesus. We don't have very much light. So, some weeks and months pass, and the Holy Spirit turns the microscope power up to ten power. And the guy goes, whoa! I have attitudes that are quenched, that are not uh, obeying the Word of God. I didn't even know about them. Now, I've been walking with the Lord. I've sought to walk with the Lord hard for 35 years. I've sought to go hard after Him. And one thing I have found in this 35 years, every couple years, doesn't take that long, the Lord turns the power up and an issue in my thinking, in my attitudes, that it was not in my mind three years ago, is now forefront on the Holy Spirit's agenda. He's saying, Mike, this is the new standard I want you to say yes to. And I can walk fully in the light. That doesn't mean that I always manifest it. To walk in the light doesn't mean that I fully attain to everything I reach to. It means that I've made a quality decision to go after it. And when I come up short, which I do all the time, particularly my words and in my thoughts, but some guy goes, oh, come on, your words and thoughts. Beloved, our words and thoughts are the most troubling vehicles to bring darkness or avenues to bring darkness into our spirit. Our words and thoughts are not small little trifling things. When I was a younger believer, I had other bigger issues. I thought thoughts and words, I'll get around to that, you know, one of these days in the future. I wish thoughts and words were my big hassle. Well, the more I walk with the Holy Spirit, the more powerful I see the place of dark thoughts and dark words. And dark thoughts are not just thoughts related to morality. The darkest thoughts we have are thoughts related to complaining and lack of gratitude. From a biblical point of view, but I don't want to go there. The point being the Holy Spirit's mandate in our life. He's saying to us, I will turn the light up in my own timing in your heart. If you will say yes to me each step of the way, you are wholehearted each step of the way in your walk. You're not just wholehearted 50 years later. You're actually wholehearted the day you say yes to the light. You could be one day older than the Lord and be as wholehearted as you are 30 years later. You're a lot more mature 30 years later, but you're not more wholehearted. You were as committed to the light that you had then as the light that you have now. When we blow it, what do we do? Instead of justifying it and finding a Bible verse to prove why it's okay to do what we did, which what many people do, many people step into compromise and they get a few friends and they look for Bible verses to justify their drunkenness or their immorality or what they do with their time. And they always find the verses on grace. There's more false teaching in the body of Christ in America on the topic of grace than you can imagine. Grace is not offered to make us comfortable while we're sinning. Grace is offered to give us a new beginning in fresh confidence before God day after day after we repent and then to give us the power to walk it out. 
So I see an area of darkness in my life. And instead of justifying it and saying, well, that's okay. The Lord says, no, don't do that. Because I want a vibrant walk with God. I want to feel the spark and the brightness of God in my spirit. Many people in the kingdom of God are so accustomed to having a dull spirit, it doesn't even bother them. They say, I've only had a dull spirit. I've had a dull spirit the whole five years I've walked with God. I've never felt fascinated or exhilarated with Jesus. Beloved, that is within your grasp even before you leave this conference. You can feel fascinated and exhilarated. I don't mean every minute of every day. But you can have those sparks of brightness in your spirit. You can have them before the end of this conference. But you will not have them if there's areas in your life you're deliberately telling the Holy Spirit, No, I'm not going to obey you. And many believers, they live 10, 20, 30 years or their whole Christian life with one or two areas they tell Him no on. Now when we do blow it, if we will admit it, and we will declare war on that issue, beloved, you can have that spark back in your spirit. That sense of brightness in your spirit. The Lord isn't disappointed or surprised when you blow it and you come up short of your commitments, what the Lord wants us to do is renew the war against that area of darkness in a new way right now today. He doesn't want us to justify it. There is so much immorality going on in the church from level 1 to level 10. There's so much drunkenness going on in the church under this perverse doctrine that so many believers have about their liberty in the issue of alcohol. Many believers have perverse ideas that are dark about that. Many do. It's cool. It's grace. It's liberty. But they continue with a weighed down, dull spirit without brightness in their heart. Same thing with their words. Same thing with their schedule. Same thing with their time, their money. I want to obey the Holy Spirit in every single area according to the light He's giving me. And I'm trying to. And I come up short many times, but what I do is, I call it sin, I recommit myself to go to war against that sin, and the Holy Spirit says, using my terminology, Yes! That's good, Mike! And I feel His presence even before I have the breakthrough in my character because I've had a breakthrough in the realm of agreement with the Holy Spirit. See, we agree with the Spirit at the heart level long before we have a breakthrough in our character. I'm talking about coming into quick agreement with the Spirit. I tell the Holy Spirit, that's wrong what I said. Even though my friends go, Mike, that's okay, that wasn't wrong. I don't want to listen to them, I want to listen to the Holy Spirit. I love the brightness in my spirit. That is the most glorious way to live, is with tenderness and brightness. It's within the reach of every single believer in the kingdom of God in the whole world. Paragraph D. We're not going to cover all of this. And again, I have the 12 pages on the internet for breaking this down more. You want to ask the Holy Spirit concerning your speech, your physical appetites, your time, your money, and what you do with your eyes. I have found these five areas are the same five areas years ago. If you do these five areas, you will end up in a place of a brightness in your spirit. If you seek to obey the Spirit on these five areas, again... You may not get a breakthrough in your character for a while in what you actually do, but when you get a breakthrough in the agreement level where you say day by day in some of these areas, I do it two or three times a day. I will still come up short. And I will call it that and I will say, Holy Spirit, I declare war again on that subject. And the Holy Spirit, yes, that's good. And I feel His presence while in quest of a breakthrough of these areas in my character. 
Now, the key to life, paragraph E, the key to success. Here's what success is in life. Finishing your life on the earth with the testimony from God that you sought to obey Him in every area. That's the summation of what the Bible calls success. If you get a history in God where you've sought to obey Him in these areas, even though you don't have the full breakthrough, but you've sought it, you will have a testimony from God that your obedience and dedication was complete. Beloved, you may not have anybody following your ministry, but when you stand before God, you will be shocked at how God will answer you with a ministry and with greatness for your thousand-year assignment on the earth in the Millennial Kingdom. And beloved, we do care about that assignment. The only reason we think we don't care now is because our hearts are dull and we can't even think that far ahead. But you get a bright spirit then you come into focus with greater clarity how important your next assignment is. Top of page 2. We have three dimensions of our calling. We have an internal calling. We have an external calling and we have an eternal calling. Internal, external, eternal. Your internal calling is to be a faithful disciple of Jesus that walks out the Sermon on the Mount. That is your number one calling in life. Almost always, when I meet a young person, it's, it's just my, uh, the way that I do it, I almost always, if I'm going to talk to them for 10 or 15 minutes, I ask them what their vision is for their life. I go, tell me. When you dream, what do you dream about? What do you want to do? And almost always, almost always, the dream they have is related to number two, their external calling. Most people are in anxiety over their external calling, their position in assignment in life. They have very little pain over their main calling, which is internal. The calling that I really care about, as well as my eternal calling, my next calling, which is only a thousand years, but that's a long time. I have 70, 80 years, according to Moses. But I'm going to get a thousand year assignment, and I really care about getting ready for that assignment right now. I really care about it. I have people that, well, years ago, the Lord spoke audibly, 25 years ago. He spoke by the audible voice of the Lord. And he said this, that we're going to do 24-hour prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. I tell that whole story on the Encountering Jesus 12 nights where I tell the stories of how, so I'm not going to go into it. But he spoke it audibly from heaven. He said, you will do 24-hour prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. 25 years ago he said that in May 1983. It was an awesome reality that God said this. But we didn't know when. So we put a big sign in the prayer room that said, 24-hour prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. Wasn't that big, but it was a sign up on the wall at the front. And so for nearly 16 years before we started this 24-7 ministry in 1999, because I had this word from the Lord in 1983, 16 years earlier. My friends would come by and they, new people would join the church that I was pastoring, they would see this sign on the wall. They go, what's that? I go, I don't know. 24-hour prayer in the spirit of the tabernacle of David. And of course, the tabernacle of David, most of you know, was the singers and the musicians that were doing it full-time with the prophetic anointing. That's the tabernacle of David. We mentioned that last night, just for a moment. I go, I don't know what this looks like. So finally, 16 years comes, and we've got this sign on the wall. IHOP now begins. So eight years later, you know, now we have a thousand or nearly fifteen hundred people doing this thing full time with students and interns and staff. If you put them all together, it's nearly fifteen hundred people doing this thing full time at IHOP that are connect, who are connected and committed to this prayer room. So we have singers and musicians and intercessors. I mean, scores of them, and there's thousands more coming. 
So I have friends all the time that I've known for 25 years. And they say, hey, they go, this must be your dream come true. I mean, you've got almost, you know, 1,000, 1,500 people doing this full time. This is the dream. We saw that sign on the wall for 16 years. This is your dream come true. And it always surprises them. And I tell them, I go, no. IHOP is not my dream. They go, what do you mean? I go, my dream isn't thousands of people doing IHOP. That's my assignment. My dream is what I do in my heart with God. My dream is that I would have the anointing to walk as a wholehearted lover of God. I would be a Sermon on the Mount man. That's my dream. It has nothing to do with IHOP. I said, I appreciate IHOP. But the minute IHOP is my dream, I will lose my highest calling in life. It's my assignment. Beloved, I, I know the days are going to come. We will be filling stadiums and all kinds of things. I appreciate it most of the time. Sometimes it's just weary. But when I close my eyes and worship and pray, I'm not thinking about IHOP. I'm thinking about how far my heart can go in the exhilaration of the beautiful man, Christ Jesus. That's my dream. And then how I will work with Him. In my next assignment on the earth, I want to be near Him. I want to be in staff meetings when He's talking about His strategy to transform the earth. I want Him to say, Mike, you went really hard in your first assignment on the earth. I want you to do this. Yes! Oh, Lord, can I come back and report to you personally? I mean it. That's, not, that's cute, but it's real. I want to talk to that man about my next assignment day by day. And of course we can by the Holy Spirit. But I don't mean just by the Holy Spirit. I want to be right there in the room with Him deciding what goes on. The Lord says, well, you can have some of that if you want, but you've got to go after the eight Beatitudes. And you've got to tell other people to. I go, I'm in. So I'm telling you about the eight Beatitudes. I'm taking this as serious as can be. Paragraph Roman number three. There's three arenas of favor and prosperity. There's the heart, the anointing for the heart obedience. There's the anointing for ministry impact, and there's the anointing for blessed circumstances. I'm talking about personal comfort and favor and honor in life. Most believers I know are focused on number three. They are consumed with having more comfort and honor in their circumstances. Beloved, it's biblical, but it's just number three, that's all. And when that becomes number one, it gets us out of sync with the Holy Spirit. It is biblical to have blessed circumstances. It's just not number one. Other people... They are more, they are really focused on impact. They want to win as many people to the Lord. They want to get people going. And that is awesome. That is so biblical. That's better than blessed circumstances as their life goal. But that's still not number one. That really is number two from a biblical point of view. I want to challenge you to make the dream of your heart the way that you carry your heart with God. The anointing and the prosperity and the favor of God on your spirit, when you touch that, you will have impact on people. And the circumstances sometimes will be blessed, and other times they won't be blessed. I'm going to have blessed circumstances forever and ever and ever. God is into my personal comfort. He's just telling me to postpone it a little while. He says, Mike, you'll have more pleasure than you know what to do with. I just want you to postpone it as your goal. I'll live in the Garden of Eden forever and ever, eating good food, never gaining weight, feeling great energy all the time. I love pleasure. That's why I'm seeking God this way. I want to challenge you 
to get the order right. Your number one mandate in life is not your ministry. Most people don't get married just so they can produce as many kids as they can. They get married because they want to connect at the heart level. Jesus wants to connect with us at the heart level. Then He wants us to have fruitfulness and impact. He really does. But that really is next. Roman numeral 4. Our primary calling is to live in complete obedience. Here's what James said. Now James, as you know, was the Lord's younger brother, his half-brother. He said in James chapter 1, verse 4, The testing of your faith, let it produce patience. And that word patience means perseverance, steadiness, steadiness of perseverance. He said, let the patience work in you. Let the patience have an impact on your heart. Let it have a perfect or mature impact on your heart. When it says, let it work in you, it means impact your heart. Why? So that you could be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. What is James talking about? James is quoting his older brother, his, his Savior and Messiah, Jesus. He's quoting Matthew 5, verse 48, when Jesus said, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beloved, the goal of our life is that we would be perfect, put the word mature, and complete, that we would lack nothing in the area of our dedication. That in the area of our eyes, our time, our words, our money, every single area, his, we don't lack dedication in any area the Holy Spirit's highlighting. Did you know that's the number one reason you have 70 years on the earth to decide this issue after you're born again? So here's what happens. We blow it. Because the goal of our life, from God's point of view, is to be perfect and complete, lacking nothing in our obedience or our dedication. That is the action plan. I mean, that is the mission statement of our life. It's called loving God with all of our heart. So here I am. I'm going. I come up short in some of these areas. The Lord says, that's okay. I'm going to give you more time. You're running a race on the earth, and the number one point of this race is that you would have perfect and complete dedication to the Lord before your life is over and before you stand before God. So I have a couple issues. Unsettled. Oh no! The Lord says, you know what? I'm going to give you more time. I'm going to give you more time. But I want you to say yes. I'm going to give you some more years. And the more years isn't so I can just goof off in life, it's so I have more time to settle every issue before I stand before Him and receive my next assignment on the earth. Beloved, the goal of your life is James 1.4, which is the same as Matthew 5.48, being perfect as your Heavenly Father is perfect. It's for you to give have time to decide and get a history that you would be lacking in nothing in the areas of dedication in every area of your heart. So all of us in this room, we lack dedication in an area or two. The Lord says, you know what, I'm going to give you more time then. And then when we do things right, we make the right decisions. The Lord says, I'm going to give you more time even to make the decision again. Because I really want it to be the genuine, deep decision of your heart. I mean, you can get in a good mood, make a right decision once. The Lord says, I want you to make the same decision more because I only want you answering this if it's really the desire of your heart. Lord, I want to obey you with my thoughts, my words, my time, my money. The Lord says, okay, I'm going to give you lots of chances to prove it and to show it forth. Paragraph B. The next verse in James, you know the verse, some of you know this verse well. It says, if any of you lacks wisdom, ask of God. James 1.5, the, the exhortation to ask for wisdom, is right after James 1.4, which is the call to be perfect and complete in our dedication. The wisdom that James is talking about is the wisdom of areas of our life in which we lack dedication. James 1.5, ask for wisdom. James is not talking about asking for wisdom for where we're supposed to move 
or who we're supposed to marry or what job we're supposed to have. There are many verses that would back up that thing. That's, that's a total biblical thing to do. But James isn't changing the subject. He's talking about asking for wisdom on the areas of your life that are not complete while you still have time on the earth. King David did it in Psalm 139. That's why one of the reasons he's called a man after God's own heart. King David said, Lord, talk to me. Shock me now. Don't shock me then. That's been a prayer I've used had for years. Lord, shock me now. Is there any area, attitude, speech, eyes, money, schedule that is not Embracing the eight Beatitudes, shock me now. Don't shock me then. Beloved, if you will ask for that kind of clarity, you will get it. And your spirit will be bright. And your spirit will be vibrant. And you'll feel God more and more. And you'll be... There's many advantages to it. We're out of time. I won't go into that. David said, Lord, tell me anything. Anything. You know, Mary of Bethany. We talk a lot about Mary of Bethany here at IHOP. Mary of Bethany sat at the feet of Jesus to worship. I love you. I love you. I love you. To gaze on His beauty. You fascinate me. You fascinate me. Wow! To intercede. Lord, break through in power. But beloved, you know another thing we do when we sit at the feet of Jesus? We ask Him for wisdom about our own hearts. Holy Spirit, give me more light. Now, you know, I'm here in the IHOP world, so I got a lot of folks that come through and they go, well, you guys do 24-hour prayer. You wrote a book on passion for Jesus. You must have passion for Jesus or you wouldn't have written a book on it. Doesn't always work that way, but... So they go, man, Mike, you're really dedicated. I appreciate that, but you know what? Uh, another person telling me I'm dedicated, that's kind of cool. It's better than telling me I'm a creep. I appreciate that versus the other... But if you don't get to vote with where I'm going, then even your assessment that I'm red hot for God doesn't really help me. All that matters is what he thinks. Because at the end of the day, if he doesn't believe it, if you compliment me and I compliment you, but if he doesn't really believe it, I gain nothing and neither do you. So I have people a lot say, well, you're so dedicated, you're so dedicated. I think I love it. That's great. But it's not really what I feed off of. I go, Lord... James 1.5 Give me wisdom. Am I dedicated? I mean, they say I am, but they, they don't get the vote where I'm going. Am I? That's what that prayer means. Am I? Any area, attitude, attitude, words, thoughts, attitudes, words, thoughts, acts, anything, anything. The Holy Spirit says, you keep asking, and I will talk to you. Final verse. I'm going to have Misty come up. Second Thessalonians 3. Look what Paul prays. He prays exceedingly that He would be able to visit them and by His ministry motivate them to perfect all the issues that are lacking in their knowledge of God and in their dedication to Him. Beloved, Paul prayed exceedingly for this issue. Throughout the Bible and on the Internet, there's 12 pages, I give you 50 verses. 50 verses where the apostles and Jesus Himself are exhorting the people to live a life of complete obedience because this is the number one calling we have on the earth. And many believers, because they don't focus on this, and they don't pray James 1.5, give me wisdom, give me wisdom on this, they just, how can I get a bigger ministry and how can I get more money is the number one things on their mind. It's okay to ask them, they have to be second. We have a short amount of time on the earth, some of you 10 years more, some of you 50 years more, some of you longer, some of you shorter. You've got one major issue. Will you end your life with a history before God that your dedication did not lack in any of the key areas? Amen. Let's stand. We're just going to take about 15 minutes here. Then we're going to end it. Give you time to get to the information meeting at 12.30 if you want for the internships. I want to give you time to do that, but we're going to take about 15 minutes right here. Stand or sit however you're comfortable, but I want you to talk to the Lord.
Lord, I want to be perfect and complete. Is there any area I'm not agreeing with you on? Yes, I know there's areas I don't have a breakthrough in my character. Is there any area that I'm resisting your leadership and throwing off your wisdom in? I want to say yes today. I want to agree. It has to do with our time, our words, what we do with our eyes. And this is my 